John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 975.NU0703, certificate number 18089, Prairie Schooners. Now that this monumental reference work is being supported by its listeners, we offer them various perks and benefits because we're generous souls. Yeah, we've done 250 plus episodes of this show now, and we've only recently started um, taking monetary contributions from our listeners to supplant the dearth of advertising dollars. We uh, have always liked that's on our Patreon page, <laughs> patreon.com slash omnibus. We've always accumulated lots of listener requests, just even unbidden. It was one of the first things that fans started to do uh, to interact with the show. Was hey, why say, isn't there a show about ramen? Yeah. Hey, why isn't there a show about Suleiman? Sule- yeah, ramen yeah. and Ramadan. <laughs> Don't do them back to back. You'll get hungry. Uh, but we, as, at lately, as one of the uh, perks for supporting the show at a certain level, a certain very generous level. Mm. Listeners are allowed to tell us what to do. This is one of the top perks. Have you ever done this from the stage? I mean, I'm sure you've had people yell requests at you on stage, but have you ever guaranteed that you would play the next song someone yelled? <laughs> I went through a phase where uh, where I didn't write a set list and would just, uh, from the first song, solicit set list uh, from the audience. That does give a lot of power to whoever yells most at a rock show. Well, a guy came up to me not very long ago and said that at some point years ago in Chicago, the band took the stage and I said, you know, it was a comedy bit to take the stage and be poised to start the show and then go, any requests? You know, it's not a thing that you see bands do. And I thought it was hilarious. And this guy was in the middle of the crowd and yelled out a song. And I was like, we'll play that. And we played the song. And then I got to the end of the song and said, any requests? And he shouted out another one. And then apparently I seized upon the gag and he, he wrote, the set wrote list? the entire set list from the <laughs> middle of the crowd until the crowd recognized that it was just going to be this guy. And so no one, and I just let him dictate the whole show. So he, uh, he recounted that story to me as something that, you know, he took great delight in. And hearing, Think of the power going to your head as a fan. Yeah. You're, 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 you're turning the radio dial and making the band play what you will. I didn't remember having done it, but it, sound, it obviously sounds like something we would do. And it, was, it must have been fun because he knew all our songs. I mean, that works if your band is, is uh, tight enough and, and flexible enough to play every song in the catalog. At the time, we were able to do it. I mean, for a period in the band's history, we had three albums and an EP, and we could play any song. And so... So he just sat and threw, threw stuff at us and we did it. That's the thing that impresses me when somebody throws a curveball at a band in the encore and they all look around and it turns out they can all play it. I'm yeah. like, wow, like, good job. Yeah. You guys haven't rehearsed that in maybe <laughs> years, right? But everybody knows it. But, uh, but it's so- not typically a thing. And usually when people on the internet requests, request that I do anything, my instinct is to say no. 
You're perverse that way. Right. You're I mean, stubborn. Somebody on the internet's like, here's what you should do. My, uh, you know, Adam Pranica uh, of the Friendly Fire podcast showed me his list of um, muted terms on Twitter. <laughs> and, <laughs> and there were several of them that were in the category of what you should do or should have done or should know. They're all muted. Think how I feel every week when I say things like, hey, we should, uh, let's record an omnibus and I have to face you being like, oh, oh, should we, Ken? Oh, are we not getting to this quick enough, Mr. Business? <laughs> I like to sit around. I like to have a good time. I should let you suggest that we do it and then you'll, then you'll be excited. Mm. And then I can be like, uh, Hey, Ken, we should do an omnibus. Let's do an omnibus right now. And in fact, since we're talking about listener suggestions... Uh, you know, it's very gratifying that when people do suggest shows, they really do understand the aesthetic of the undertaking. They seem to do. And we have taken some suggestions and incorporated them into our lists, although we'll never let you know uh, that we've done that because you got it for free. <laughs> right. And also, many times people have suggested a very omnibusy thing that you or I already had on our we short We already had long lists yeah. and short lists. And... Uh, but in this, right now, we're going through, uh, I think, three or four people who have donated at, at one of the higher levels. And we recorded the show about streaking for our friend Krista. That's right. And uh, Corey Nestland, uh, a listener named Corey Nestland, sent in a, a couple suggestions, uh, including romance novels, Guadalcanal, and The Oregon Trail. I assume those are three different shows and not, right. not, not one very complicated show. We just recently did uh, a. Well, not a romance novel exactly, but uh, but a sexy novel. We talked about rom- the romance publishing boom quite a bit in our Naked Came the Stranger. Right, entry. the romance novels were part of what inspired the the spiteful writing of of Naked Came the Stranger. But that is very that is very omnibus. The fact that it's kind of this billion selling segment in publishing that nobody really talks about because. Well, mostly because it's the patriarchy keeping women's voices down. Sure, of course. Also because the books aren't very good, but mostly because it's the patriarchy keeping women's voices down. Right. Um, so you were given, so given the choice between Guadalcanal and the Oregon Trail. Well, and I don't remember why I was given these choices rather than you. Oh, because you did streaking. It was my turn. Also, this really seems right down your well, both, alley, the, the World well, War II of the Pacific and Well, really all three the things. Frontier. Romance novels and Guadalcanal and the Oregon Trail are all right out of the John hat. You have a tattoo on your chest that says romance novels, the Oregon Trail, and Guadalcanal, <laughs> Weird, weirdly. And, you know, Guadalcanal seemed like a thing that I could dig into. But but um, but as Westerners, the Oregon Trail has, has uh, arguably played a role in both of our lives. Um, it's certainly how... A segment of my family arrived here in Washington. My family came to the West via the Mormon Trail. Right, which is part of the Oregon Trail. Right. Or the Mormons rather co-opted, as they are wanted. As they to will do, often do. Uh, uh, part of the Oregon Trail on their way to their, their ancestral homelands. Um, but yeah, the Oregon Trail has always been a sort of a fascinating um, aspect of our Northwestern hi- history because at the time... Washington was part of the Oregon Territory. It really could easily be called the Washington Trail, particularly since in its later uh, iterations, it ended at Fort Vancouver on the Washington side of the Columbia River. Although, you know, as we've, I think we've said before, Washington was kind of a late-breaking name for Northern Oregon. Right. It would not have been, that was a last-minute decision. Somebody's looking around. It's like the sitcom trope where somebody's looking around. Uh, Yeah, my name is Mr. Uh, Uh... Hat rack. <laughs> it's retconning for sure. It, was, it would have been Columbia, right? That's what it, the Northwest was often called back then. Well, yeah, and and, and it was it was the United Kingdom. Uh, well, yes, and, and, <laughs> until pretty deep should into our the, story, should we call it the British Trail? <laughs> uh, and then and, and uh, the the UK plays a pretty large role in this in the story, as we'll see. What do you think of when you think of the Oregon Trail? Oh, well, uh, I just missed being the generation affected by the bad video game. Oregon Trail, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's not bad, but it's it's a real rite of passage, this kind of starchy educational game where everybody dies of, uh, what, diphtheria? Yeah, well, uh, cholera. Cholera? Yeah. What do you die of on the Oregon Trail? Cholera. Dysentery. It's dysentery. Dysentery. dysentery is bad, yeah, but cholera it. is in the family. Yes, they're, they're yeah. both diarrheal diarrhea related. Yeah, the the and 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 I can cover that right now. The reason uh that those diarrheal diseases killed so many people on the Oregon Trail is that uh 
through the length of it, through the American West, there were only so many watering holes, places that you could get fresh water. And at the height of the pioneer travel across the Oregon Trail and its many tributaries, there were so many people and all clogging the same few watering holes and all needing to poop somewhere. And uh, and so it just was this it's breeding spread. ground for this terrible, terrible uh, epidemic of of dysentery. Plus, I'm sure dehydration is worse when water's in short supply. Right. So, yeah, there just weren't there, – there wasn't clean water because there wasn't that connection made between, uh, you know, between pooping and drinking. It's funny to think of uh, crowds of pioneers, like uh, traffic jams of the old West. And it really was that. Thousands and thousands of people uh, – that were traveling during the during the season that you could make it over the mountains in snow free. Um, I mean, that's the image I have from movies is just long lines of of covered wagons just from from the camera to the horizon. And it really was that in in some, but in 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 a lot of places where there was room, um, the wagons would actually spread out and travel together in a line. Uh, sometimes how wide <laughs> 60 wagons across what, what are they doing well the the one of the big problems of the Oregon Trail was dust if you weren't in the front wagon you I were choking see. on dust and so they would spread out to you know so that they could breathe that, you never see that in movies no. you never see a flotilla of 60 wagons across but if you can imagine being in the 30th wagon in a wagon train how much you would just have a you'd have a, a handkerchief across your nose the entire time eyes burning from this this terrible terrible dust something else the westerns are silent on yeah Enough. well and I guess westerns always take place in the first wagon westerns make a lot of mistakes and one of the one of the first mistakes they make is that wagon trains are often depicted with conestoga wagons which are these sort of enormous sway-backed wagons that you see often in in depictions of the wagon trail. I'm going to look at a picture of a Conestoga wagon, and then I'm going to tell you whether or not that's the thing I was picturing. Yep. Is that what you were picturing? Yeah, it's got kind of the uh, what kind of the, it's the raindrop shaped. Yeah, canvas. You've got canvas that's that's a. Uh, that is Rounded really sort top. of peaked on the sides. It, yes, looks, it almost looks like a big banana from the like side. Like a banana, yeah. yeah. A Conestoga wagon dates all the way back to colonial times. Sure, because Conestoga is a place in, what, Pennsylvania? Pennsylvania. This is, it's another omnibus where we find our way somehow to the middle of Pennsylvania. And get lost. Uh, Con- Conestoga, it, there's actually a river there, or you know, it's variously described as a river or a creek. Uh, the Conestoga River is a tributary of the Susquehanna. Conestoga. But it was uh, it was sort of Mennonite territory. Well, it was Native American territory originally. And the Conestoga is an I think an Iroquois word. Um and there was a there was a tribe there called the Conestoga that of course were wiped out. In the mid eighteenth century it was, you know, it was uh, settled by Mennonites and uh the Conestoga wagon, I guess, was first described as such early 1700s, and it was a it was a very large wagon. It was made swayback like that uh, in so order to why is it higher on the ends? In order to hold grain so that the grain oh. wouldn't spill out either side. Uh, it was you know it was a, a transport. It's basically a gravy boat. You're pulling yeah. a gravy boat behind a horse. That's right. Uh, pulling a gravy boat behind. Six horses. Hmm. Um, they were huge. They were they were weirdly big. You don't think of them as this. Uh, they were eighteen feet long, eight feet across, and um, it's like your suburban. Yeah, that's right. And got about as good a mileage. <laughs> but as um, as the westward expansion started to happen in colonial America, what that meant was get over the Appalachians, and these wagons were road going wagons and and those those pioneer adventures were done you know the roads were constructed pretty quickly in colonial america and it was a network of roads that that facilitated travel up and down the coast from state to state and then over the over the Appalachians. So you're not going off the grid when you cr- when you cross the Cumberland Gap. Somebody, no. Somebody's put a road there for your wagon. Right. A Conestoga wagon would be really bad as an off-road vehicle because they often 
carried as much as 10 tons of material. Mm. They were used really to settle Appalachia. Uh, they, they were, they were kind of colonial roads that went from Philadelphia seemed to be a jumping off point down through Stanton, Virginia, Roanoke, as far as Knoxville. And then down, you know, there was a tributary that went as far as Georgia and these, but these wagons became indispensable Conestogas to the transport of goods and services in the colonial era. This is going to be a total aside, but do you know, uh, fun fact about the Conestoga wagon, it's often thought to be the source of our modern word stogie, meaning a cigar. Really? It's not clear why. Maybe the drivers were often smoking cigars, or maybe the cigars were long like the, uh, like the wagon wheel spokes, uh-huh. but stogie is almost certainly a contraction of Conestoga. Oh, how cool. So think about that next time you're sucking on a stogie. Yeah, the next time I'm sucking on a stogie, I'm definitely going to say to whatever dudes it is I'm sitting around with smoking cigars, like, <laughs> hey, you guys know something? And then they'll, they'll treat me as they always do because I'm, I'm always that guy. <laughs> uh, Conestoga wagons were not comfortable to ride upon. They were not... I'm uh, guessing nothing was comfortable to ride on back then. No, they. but this was before uh, wagons themselves had any kind of uh, shock Shocks. absorbers. And so... You felt every rock. You really did. And it was really before the kind of later Western innovation of putting a uh, seat board on springs. So even mm. though the wagon was bumping, you know, you were sitting at least on a sprung saddle. Uh, what they had instead was a board that they could pull out the side called a lazy board uh, where the driver could kind of perch himself. But most of the time, the driver of the team just walked alongside the wagon. The wagon traveled about 12 miles a day, which is... That's walkable. Uh, well, not just walkable. It's a pretty pretty leisurely pace. It's, that's a four-hour... You can walk 12 miles in four hours or right. something. Right. So... Um, so it was a, it was a slow moving form of transportation, but, but a, um, it's, it's freight basically. It's freight. It's, it's, it's instead of tractor trailers that, and it, and the position of the lazy board and the way that Conestoga wagons, you know, the, the kind of, um, the, the system that Conestoga wagons developed is why we in America drive on the right hand side of the road. That's that just was sort of naturally the uh, the lazy the, board sticks out on one side, right? The driver walked on that side, and so that became the the side that uh, that the that we drive to this day. And in the United Kingdom, I think it was they drive on the other side of the road because of I don't know arrogance. They couldn't. They yeah they they saw what we were doing and they decided to do the opposite or something. Who knows? Maybe they were doing it first. Who cares? <laughs> um, but the. As westward expansion started to happen, uh, the Conestoga wagon was really bad for driving in sand or across prairie. Uh, and the wagons we think of as Oregon trail wagons are uh, a much smaller and more um, agile wagon that were nicknamed the prairie schooner. They are only about 10 feet long, four feet wide, about half the size, really, of a Conestoga. Oh, I'm looking at a picture now, and uh, yeah, except for scale, these don't look all that different. No, but they are, but they're typically just like a farm wagon, a square yes. wagon that's outfitted with a canvas top. The canvas often was uh, was soaked in oil or wax in order to provide some weatherproofing. You could do the thing where you tightened the front and back of the canvas down to keep the keep the sand out. It's a good look. Um, it's had the little kind of the scrunchy look. Is it? Uh, are they pulled by a team of oxen instead of horses? Or oxen were that preferred. Mules huh. uh, were preferred to horses just because they're they're hardier and and um, more. I guess. Uh, more reliable, although you don't think of a mule as as more reliable. Kind of the opposite. But, you know, it would take 10 to 12 horses to pull a typical prairie schooner. And a lot of those were animals that you kept in reserve because you knew you were going to lose a few, uh, where, where it only required six oxen to pull. But these were much smaller, much lighter uh, wagons. They were only 
they were only one ton instead of 10 tons of stuff they were carrying because you were on the Oregon trail, particularly in the early days, we're going to be uh, traversing all kinds of environments and, and without much preparation, you're going to be fording rivers. These wagons often were caulked so that you could, you could ford a river and they would kind of, well, they wouldn't, they wouldn't take on water through their boards. I mean, they were, they were real SUVs. And you're traveling a little lighter, right? It's like, it's like putting your roller bag in the overhead compartment instead of the check bag of the Conestoga era. I mean, you're bringing everything you need, hopefully, to pioneer some ground and, and as, as it were and survive, right? But I, but, but it's I, just it's the bare minimum because minimum. of weight. It's seed and tools, and seed and tools, and probably just axes rather than axe handles, right? You're just oh, bringing the metal. Right. That's interesting. And then you make the, the handle. First thing when you, you get do there. is make your handle. You got to have yeah. one little tool to make the handle. With. Uh-huh. Then you then you throw that one away. That's exactly right. And the and the only things really that you need are seed to to plant your first crop and sugar, coffee, wine. A Bible. A Bible. Shakespeare. Wine. Not on the Mormon trail. <laughs> That's why the Mormons were so successful. No coffee, no wine. They had room for more sugar and more Bibles. That's right. That was that was our secret. The Oregon Trail is a funny is a funny route to the West. Um, the first Europeans, or rather the first uh, American explorers to the West, were Lewis and Clark. But Lewis and, and in 1803, but Lewis and Clark were looking for a water route to the West. Uh, believing that the most efficient way to get there was going to be by boat. Would have been true if there had been such a route. That's right. Up a river and down a river. The Northwest Passage. Everybody believed that there was some way to get from one coast to the other by boat. And it really tormented explorers. Here's the problem. They gave it a name. They shouldn't have been like, we got to find the Northwest Passage, capital N, capital P. Because that really implies that there is one and it just hasn't been drawn on the map yet. You just got to keep looking. What if they had called it... The river that might exist, all all lowercase. <laughs> well, if they had just realized that rivers very seldom go from ocean to ocean. <laughs> yeah, go up and then down. <laughs> it's not really a thing the that pro- rivers do. <laughs> the problem is the part where it has to go up, sir. I, I don't know if you're going to find that. The, the area of the Northwest in the United States was really uh, developed and exploited initially by by Britain and specifically by the Hudson Bay Company. During this period in London, beaver pelts were very, very fashionable in the manufacture of men's hats. And the hat, the beaver hat, was so fashionable. It's hard to imagine a hat-based economy, much less a beaver-based hat-based economy. The, the, this is a, a little, I guess, a little-known part of the um, of understanding what European interest in the Northwest and in the exploration of Canada and the United States really was. It was dictated by the fashion for beaver hats and beaver trapping, and the trade of beaver felt uh, was the impetus. For all these mountain men and all the exploration of the Columbia River and Oregon and Washington and British Columbia and Saskatchewan. It's all dudes in their fancy hats. Dudes in their fancy hats We should hats make westerns London. about them. The, the thing about Lewis and Clark, they were, first of all, not pursuing beaver pelts. But in, in following the rivers, they didn't find the best way across the Rocky Mountains. They actually went... Um, you know, following the Missouri up, they found some kind of bad ways across the the Rockies. They went uh, they went along Lolo Pass and Lemhi Pass. Both pretty. I've been across both passes, and neither pass is how you would want to cross the Rockies. They just crossed where they came. They crossed up the river, and then on the way back, they actually took a different route, which was a, a better pass, but still not a great pass. They weren't asking the Native Americans, like, what's the best way across the mountains? They were kind of, again, dictating the route by by trying to explore via boat. And so that 
I'm, I presume the Native Americans they're just they laugh. They're just, the Native Americans are like, just pointing and laughing. Sure, you want to go up this waterfall, man? Like, sure. I mean, there's a. I can tell you, I've heard about a pass further south. I like how you have notes on the Lewis and Clark expedition. <laughs> Pretty good, but <laughs> let well, me just give you a little. What if you tried a different pass? Can you know how much I love Luke Burbank? It's Luke Burbank, Seattle legend, uh, frequently. Uh, guest host and panelist on public radio's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. He's a friend of both of ours. Did you know that he and I were uh, in contention? Uh, We were each potentially going to host the Portland-based variety show Livewire, uh, Livewire Radio. And he and I did several, we we did several, um, not several, but a handful of episodes of Livewire where we co-hosted it. So you're like the Brian Dunkelman of of Livewire? You got... What's the Brian Dunkelman? The guy, the What's guy who gets Dunkelman? the guy who gets replaced by Ryan Seacrest because he's uh, oh he gets kicked out. Well, I, I it, it was uh, I think it was down to like, do we want the professional uh, broadcaster who knows what he's doing and puts on a spectacular show uh, night after night and is a great interviewer, or do we want the Sh- shaggy fun rock guy? <laughs> do we want the rumpled rambler? Old Mister didn't remember where he put it. Put his notes. Luke Furbank and his friend Andrew Walsh uh, do a podcast called "Too Beautiful to Live." One of the legendary Northwest podcasts. You and I have both been guests on that show, and too, I, I really enjoy it. "Too Beautiful to Live" started as a radio show here on Cairo Radio. Yeah, I had to go into Cairo the first time I met Luke. Yeah, uh, I went there too with the I, I, um, the the very early podcast. You look nice today. Was on tour. And we all went down to Cairo to be on Luke's show. So it was like early podcast meets earlier podcast. Well, this is dec- over a decade later. That's right. Uh, Luke and Andrew are still doing this show. A daily show. And it's fantastic. Like uh, uh, every time I'm on the show, I'm amazed at what a like what lively, smart interviewers they are. Yeah. Luke's really good at that. I'm, I'm jealous of his interview Luke and Andrew's skills. banter uh, together. Their thing is really great. And their fans are called the tens uh, <laughs> based on a, a comment they made years and years and years ago about how they had tens and tens of listeners. They, but th- uh, those listeners now are, uh, are in the tens of thousands in the twelves or thirteens at least thirteens of thousands. The show has the humble miss- mission of curing global loneliness. And that's a great little, the tens are a great community they have created. They've cured my loneliness. Did you know that uh, that uh, I rented an apartment to Luke Burbank at one point? Sounds like you cured his loneliness uh, or well, homelessness. I, I certainly I cured his homelessness briefly. We cured the loneliness of all the other people in the apartment building that all sent me complaining emails about him listening to his stereo really loud and running around in his underpants. Uh, I had to kick him out. He, Luke and Andrew are friends of Omnibus, have been great supporters of the show, and we are happy to recommend them to you as well. Listen to Too Beautiful to Live, wherever podcasts are sold. Could be Apple Podcasts. It's wherever you listen to Omnibus. There it is. The Hudson Bay Company became a major exploiter of the region. And in buying beaver pelts in order to uh, fulfill this hat lust in London, they inspired or they, or rather they motivated um, this generation of trappers and mountain men to explore the West. And the Hudson Bay company actually had a route that went from Hudson Bay from a town called York factory, which was the kind of uh, headquarters of Hudson Bay. So we're way up in what is now Northern Ontario. That's right. Uh, there was a road, a route from there all the way to Fort Vancouver on the mouth of the Columbia river. And they had, instituted a path where in the spring and fall, there would be a wagon would leave York factory on Hudson Bay and a wagon would leave Fort Vancouver at the same time. Is this a story problem? And and they would pass in the night. One would, you know, they would pass somewhere in the middle. I can prove they would pass once. Yes, (laughs) They would pass somewhere in the middle and like high five each other. The one coming from Fort Vancouver would be full of beaver pelts. And the one headed from 
Hudson Bay would be full of supplies. And this York Factory Express, which wasn't really much of an express. Well, I was about to say, is that it, the sum total of traffic on this route? Yeah, is, I mean, is, it took 100 days or whatever to, to transit this route. But this became a kind of proto um, path to and from the West. Yeah. I mean, it's ocean to ocean. Right. This was, uh, and we've talked about this during the Pig War episode, this whole region was claimed by Britain, and Britain had a, had a, a real vested interest in keeping American settlers out. But American settlers had their normal expansionist desire to come in. It's in their name. That's right. Settlers. Settlers. Now, in 1812, uh, a, a trapper and explorer by the name of Robert Stewart found a better route. He headed south of what had what was sort of the regular route to avoid hostile Indians who I think at this point had realized, wait a minute. There's one of these guys here every year. <laughs> what, what, what are all these guys uh, coming through here for? I think I've had just about enough of these guys. He headed south through, uh, through what is now Wyoming and discovered what's called the South Pass, which is uh, an area in central Wyoming, just a little bit north of what, be, uh, what is now I-80, which was really a wide and gradually sloped pass through the Rockies, basically the best way to get across the Rockies. And is that true even in hindsight? We, like, that's, that's about as good as you can do. South Pass became the place that, I mean, your forebears uh, who traveled the Mormon Trail went through the South Pass. The South Pass, even now, when you drive across I-80 and you go up from Salt Lake and across Wyoming, you have the very... Um, you have a sense. I mean, as you as you come into Salt Lake from the east, you do go through. You've got to cross the Wasatch Mountains. Yeah, you yeah. get you you go through a pretty a rough city. little pass, yeah. but it's not a thing where people would be chewing on each other's bones to get through there. I mean, you have to. It's a thing to navigate, but you can follow a river for a lot of it, um, and then across all of Wyoming, it's this beautiful wide valley, and on many crossings, I earlier on in life, I was left to wonder what was so hard about crossing the Rockies. This seems pretty mild. What Rockies? It's, More like the smooths. <laughs> it's just that early uh, early people going across that those routes hadn't yet just figured it out. I mean, you know, it was there were thousands of mountain men, but it took them a while. And the thing about Robert Stewart discovering South Pass is he did it in 1812, which was Kind of a tricky time. It's not a high point in American-British relations. No, there was there was a, a a little bit of a war going on, and this South Pass route got lost. He reported huh. on it. He brought it back, but it just sort of people forgot about it. Robert Stewart's uh, report of the of the trail was lost until about ten years later, when no less a person than Jedediah Smith rediscovered the South Pass. And it was then sort of, um, and this was again, part of a sort of mountain man fur trading expedition. Uh, and then in 1832, uh, an army captain by the name of Benjamin Bonneville took a wagon train across the pass, um, now, instead of a, a pack train. Now I believe I have, I been to a, is there a park named for Jedediah Smith in is there some Redwoods named for Jedediah Smith yes. or something? Jedediah Smith was— What am I supposed to know about him besides the fact that his Redwoods are lovely? Jedediah Smith was a sort of a one of these gentleman scholar frontiersmen who, um, who was a trapper and a—but um, but then when he came back and shaved his beard, he was— um, He's a, like a memoirist of the West, that, yeah, that kind of a thing. That's right. He was a dandy, and he worked for. Uh, he actually sort of explored the Salt Lake region. He was the first American to cross the Mojave Desert. Oh. He did all this stuff, and he actually, you know, he ran afoul of uh, some Indians. And I think it was it was only he was one of these people that was like maybe famous in his time and then lost to history. But then some 20th century uh, historian of the West 
wrote a biography of him and kind of like the, like Moby Dick became the great American novel because of 20th century scholarship rather than, I mean, yeah. at, the, at the time of its publishing, Moby Dick was sort of like, Meh, it's pretty long. And what is this guy, Ishmael? What is this all about? What am I supposed to call you? Anyway, so, um, so Jedediah Smith became a famous mountain man, but only in the 20th century, uh, you know, kind of long after long after his exploits. And well, that, that now, gives you some hope. If nothing, you know, if nothing is named after you by the time you die, just, you know, wait a century. Maybe you'll have a, a nice Redwoods park named for you, like like the one I went to in California. You know, this is the funny thing about having things named after you when you die. Even if they name something after you six months after you die, you'll never know because you died. You've already started being composted in a silo. Do they ever name anything after someone who's still alive? It always seems a little tryhard. Like uh, when you know when something when the Obama Freeway gets renamed or whatever, you think, "Come on, is that going to last?" Come on, yeah, exactly. Right. I think that in Alaska, um, the Ted Stevens Anchorage, Inter- what had formerly been called the Anchorage International Airport, yeah, uh, was renamed the Ted Stevens International Airport in honor of. Um, in honor of Senator Senators. Ted Stevens, my uncle Jack's former law partner, but and I think that that happened before Ted died. Right? Is that true? I mean, as we pointed out, he died in a plane crash, right? So it would be he did. It would be ba- bad taste to name it an airport for him right after. Oh, interesting. Um, no, but he was he was still alive. Although in 1978, he survived a crash at the Anchorage International Airport that <laughs> killed his wife. Wow. I don't. I think maybe you shouldn't name it after him or at least call it the Ted and Jeannie Stevens International Airport. Or yeah, whatever. exactly. I mean, I guess, uh, isn't Benino Aquino Airport, isn't the airport where Aquino died now named for him? Maybe this is the thing. Die at an airport. <laughs> <laughs> Die at an airport and you've got die, at least some chance of getting named after you. Die in the sky lounge. They'll name an outlet after you. <laughs> I think Reagan was still alive when they kept started, when the conservative movement started naming all that stuff after him. But of course, he wouldn't have noticed. Right. Oof. Oof. I mean, if it happened in his final term, he might not have noticed. <laughs> um, the Oregon Trail really started to open up in uh, the mid-1830s. And this was at a time when all of Oregon territory was still a British, was still a a British territory. And so it became somewhat complicated. The Hudson Bay company was charged with kind of um, uh, not facilitating Americans, but the head of the Hudson Bay company in Oregon was a man by the name of John McLaughlin, who uh, uh, defying direct orders provided aid and comfort to American settlers when they arrived in Oregon. What a traitor. Famously. What did. a traitor to the king. He believed, or possibly queen. What year is this? <laughs> uh, 18, 1830s and 40s. Okay, king still. Yeah. Um, he was, uh, he believed that the settling of the Willamette Valley and the, and the populating of the area was the greater good. But also, I think, had great affection for Americans uh, with all their can-do spirit. And the Hudson Bay Company could not convince Canadians to travel their York Factory Express Road in the same numbers that Americans were headed west. And John McLaughlin eventually became an American and uh, is even now regarded as a kind of hero of Oregon. I like that we converted him. We did. We charmed him with our rough frontier we ways. We were like, come on, we got better hats. <laughs> uh, the, the, um, the, the thing that happened was in the mid-1840s, the fashion in London changed, and fur hats fell out of style. Uh, the beaver was no longer the prized fur because there was a new hat in town. Imagine the, whoever the influential fashion columnist is who makes that call and, and, and saves the beaver, saves, you know, saves the species and decimates uh, an industry. Yeah. And it was, it really was the, the decline of the beaver hat, um, kind of finished British ambition in the Pacific Northwest 
because without the beaver powering the economy, there was no reason for Canadians to be there at all. Well, it's very pretty. Well, there's an awful lot of pretty stuff in Canada without them having to travel a hundred days on a rough trail just to get to Oregon. Fair enough. And let me tell you, it's only two and a half hours to Oregon from here, and I don't find a reason <laughs> to make that trip very often. I mean, I go down sometimes, go to Powell's and do a do a show. But, but I want to put my own gas. Why would I go down yeah, there? That's right. You can save you can save what? Sales tax, but you have to pay Income tax. Income tax. Ugh. So complicated. So all the beaver dads are out of work. Springsteen's writing songs about them shutting the beaver factory down. That's right. Beaver dads are out, but American dads are in. And with the uh, with the British no longer protecting Oregon, uh, by 1846, the Treaty of Oregon was signed that, uh, that established the American... Canadian border at the 49th parallel, which as we know is, is, uh, where it is today, where it is today and up north of Bellingham. So the, I think the idea that the British had for a long time was that the border, the border between America and Canada would be the Columbia river, but which would have made more sense kind of than some line that actually cuts, uh, right. Part of, uh, what part of Washington off. What's that peninsula? It's called, uh, Port George. No. Port. Why can I not think of this? I'm not going to Google it. It's Fort something? No, it's called Gingertown. Something, something Point. It's Something Point. It's it, Ray's Point. No, that's not right. It's uh, Northwest Angle is the one. Bristol in, Point. It's Point something. It's Point yeah. Orchard. No. no point. That's Port Orchard. <laughs> point. You sure it's not? What is it? I'm Okay, I'm not going to Google it either. Come on, smarty pants. You're the this is a Jeopardy question. What is the part of It's a sort of Point Roberts. Point Roberts. There we go. Is that right? Let's leave all that in. I think James Holzhauer would have beaten you to the buzzer on that one. I think Watson had it about five minutes ago. <laughs> um between eighteen forty six, which is right about uh when the Oregon uh treaty was signed, and eighteen sixty nine over 400,000 people made this uh, transit on the Oregon Trail. And uh, portions of the Oregon Trail kind of branched off, or, or the, the early part of the trail was used by everybody. So if you were going to California, and of course in 1849, gold was discovered at Sutter's Mill in California. So the Oregon Trail, the eastern half of it, became completely clogged with oh, people. No, nobody comes here anymore. It's too full. They were on their way. And also a lot of the original settlers of Oregon pulled up stakes and headed to California as well to and and some of them brought a lot of gold back to Oregon made and they didn't realize of course there was plenty of gold in Oregon and Washington they could mine they figured that out later um but the California trail and then uh the Mormons as you know as you well know Joseph Smith was assassinated in 1844 right in these heady times and by 1848, the Mormons were moving en masse from the plains and from their, you know, um, from Nauvoo mm -hmm. uh, across the plains to Salt Lake. And in the course of the next several years, uh, over 60,000 Mormons proceeded along that early, that, that first half of the Mormon Trail through South Pass and then down into Salt Lake. Yeah, by, by 10 years later, there were three Chick-fil-A's already there. Three Chick-fil-A's, and, <laughs> and, and also they had they'd made a, a, a town out of a grid and had named all the streets First Avenue. As you know, in Salt Lake City, there are 15 First Avenues. In Salt Lake City, they, uh, they thought their town was 100 times better than any other town. So instead of just like first, second, third, all the streets are like 100, 200, 300. <laughs> they were really leaving room for the possibility that 99 new streets might develop between uh, this and the next block, just in case. Just in case. We're always prepared for the future. It could be a, a town of 50 million. You, we never know. You never know. You could go in every direction. Um, throughout this entire time, the covered wagon or the prairie schooner was the method of of settling. Why was it called the Prairie Schooner? Have we talked about this? A, sch was, a schooner was already a boat, I assume. A schooner was a boat, and there was something about the way that the that the white canvas 
kind of flapped in the wind that looked like sails. And the metaphor of the rolling plains to to a... Ocean surface must right. have been very tempting. It was, and the, this light, uh, this the light grass and, waving like waves, uh, and a sort of uh, agile little craft that was going to take you and your family across the cholera-soaked <laughs> watering holes and deposit you in a promised land. Uh, it was a you know an, a, an elegant and romantic metaphor. Yeah, I guess the name also highlights its lightweight. Nature compared to a, a old timey Conestoga wagon. Well, one it's a the, schooner, not a barge. That's right. One of the problems of of wagons in general is that they're very hard to turn, and up until really this part of the, I mean, this era, most horse drawn vehicles were carts, two wheeled uh, carriages, which are you know, it's turned on a point. You turn on a point. The problem with a with a carriage is that at a certain place in the rotation, the wheels are going to rub against the side of the cart. Mm. So in order to make a cart agile, you need to make it narrow for the wheels to turn. But if you make it narrow, you reduce its carrying capacity. So uh, what you'll see often in Western wagons is the front wheels are quite a bit smaller in radius than the rear wheels. And that is in order to make the cart turn more uh, with a smaller radius. Just like how bicycles used to have a bigger wheel in front. They were making up for that. A bigger wheel in front. Yes, this is the opposite, right? Right. But yeah, but the thing about um, those old, uh, uh, what are they're not, what are they called? The uh, penny farthing uh, bikes. penny farthing bikes. The thing is, with those you turn by just leaning because you're going so fast on a penny farthing that it's like you're on a velodrome. You just lean into the turn. I can't imagine going fast on one of those because I think if you fell, you would die. Well, you're you, like six feet up or you've something. You've never been in a Decemberist song, obviously. <laughs> uh, and one of the interesting things about, about carts is that by the mid-1850s, as the, as the Mormon migration really increased in volume, there are, and this may be hard for you to imagine, but there were a lot of poor Mormons. Poormans, we call them. Poormans. And uh, so a oh, lot... Oh, they were immigrants. Like a lot of them were European immigrants who had nothing back there. They were offered a new life on the frontier. And they had nothing up here. And Yeah, and so they got there with the shirt on their back. And so... Uh, maybe unbelievably, thousands and thousands of Mormon immigrants on the Mormon Trail actually made that journey pulling handcarts or pushing handcarts. Some will push and some will pull. This is the uh, this is the Mormon lore about the handcarts. Tell us the is that is it a little is it a rhyme yeah, or a is it a ditty. song? Some will push and some will pull as we go marching down the hill. I guess up well, and then down. You'd sure hope it was down the hill, but no, you're going up. So merrily on the way we go until we reach the Valley O. It's a little bit of a cheat because go and valley do not rhyme. Sure. Mormons not famous for their songs, although for their choirs. <laughs> Don't tell the Osmonds that. <laughs> oh, right. right. Mor- Mormons can be both a little bit country and a little bit rock and roll. It's one of the things I like most about We're them. ambidextrous. But over 3,000 Mormon families made, the, uh, made that part, that, uh, they transited that part of the Oregon Trail, pushing and pulling carts. With neither Ox nor horse. Now, what's crazy about uh, about the prairie schooner is that you're only because the road, the 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 Oregon Trail was so rough, and in many many locations across the United States, you can still see the ruts. So many carts went across this this ground that they carved deep deep ruts into the rock. Wow! And there are there are lots of places I think now where the where the uh, the Oregon Trail has been preserved across the landscape and you can go and it's still, still looks like a wagon road to this day. Um, but a lot of those carts and those wagon trains were moving at about 10 miles a day, um, between 10 and 20 miles a day. And that is slower than you could walk. I mean, you could walk three miles an hour without breaking a sweat. Sure. So, um, so again, most of the prairie schooners, people weren't riding. I suppose you'd put your kids in it, but, but most of the time, you'd walk alongside it or ride a horse alongside it. But all of that really came to a close in 1869 when the first Transcontinental Railroad got built. And as crazy as it sounds, although that was a, in the early days, obviously, the much more luxurious route, it also was way, way cheaper than driving a horse team 
for 120 days across the West. Really? I you guess could. They should have charged more. If you're the first Continental Railroad, you've got a monopoly. Sure. Just cost whatever a wagon team costs minus one cent. I mean, the railroad at first only went the one place that it went, <laughs> right. right? It didn't. It's not like you could get over there and immediately go up to uh, to Seattle. And in fact, it took a long time to complete the railroad to Seattle. I assume the railroad ended somewhere in California. It right? did, yeah, initially. But then, you know, there was a spur built up to Portland, and um, there was a lot of contention about railroad building in Washington. It took quite a bit longer for it to get up. Initially, the idea was that Port Townsend would be the terminus of the of the um, what was it, the Northern Pacific Railroad. So just like today, you can't get anything built here. Uh, it, and it took a while. I mean, people were still traveling the Oregon Trail, you know, after the construction of the railroads, but gradually... It was just hipsters jogging it. That's right. It was just like, oh, sure, so, you're going to take the Oregon Trail. It's like guys and women after a divorce. One of the crazy things uh, that you notice in Washington is that the town of Walla Walla, which is well uh, to the southeast corner of the state, was founded a long time before Seattle and the cities on the west uh, because Walla Walla was was fertile farmland and was being settled by Oregon Trail um, pioneers while Seattle was still just a twinkle in some shipbuilder's eye. I mean, uh, clearly there were uh, like flourishing Native American populations. Let's not erase that. Um, So the wagon train eventually sort of, and and the Civil War also kind of changed the nature of... um, of wagon training, you know, there was a, there was a lot else going on. Probably a lot less migration. West. A lot less migration West. But, um, but fortunately for you, Ken, and for me, we can still experience the Conestoga wagon experience, the wagon train experience, because uh, wagon living is now a very popular form of glamping. I guess I, I have missed this issue of Sunset Magazine. How do I glamp in a prairie schooner? So glamping, as as futurelings surely know, is a portmanteau of glamorous camping. It's awful. Uh, it is awful. The funny thing is glamour and camping are both words that sound great. So you'd yeah. think that glamping would just be the best word. Yeah. And instead it somehow manages to grab what's worst about both words, and it sounds like a urinary tract infection. Yeah, I've got a bad case of glamping. Uh, I've been glamping for three days. I need to talk to my OB. Glamorous camping has a really nice melodious ring. What are you doing, glamorous camping? I love it. What are you doing, glamping? Ugh, I hate you, and you're and you're glamping. Glamping is something a surgeon does in an operation. But there is a company called the Conestoga Wagon Company, based in Idaho which is kind of historically inaccurate given how few Conestoga wagons actually made the trip. Uh, but they are making modern Conestoga wagons, which then they provide to glamping outfits. And you can, in fact, stay there in, in Pendleton blanket wrap splendor. Is it effectively a cabin or do you hop in the, uh, the Conestoga wagon and head to your campsite? No, it doesn't move. I it's see. just okay. sort of, they circle the, wheels, the wagons. They literally circle them. They do. They so, circle them. So the wheels are decorative in this case. Uh, yeah. Although kind of like uh, a mobile home, I feel like if the people sell the land, you they you can't actually hook them up. It's like a it's Are like there one of these for your for your mule. It's like one of those Seattle houseboats. That's like really what makes this a boat? It's like well, you could tow it and if wh- you needed to. And why not a prairie schooner? Why Conestoga wagons? Roomy, Con- roomier, roomier. I guess. Sure, it's glamping, not camping. What was I thinking? I'm so down market. And that concludes Prairie Schooners, entry 975.NU0703, certificate number 18089, in the omnibus. Listeners, if you want to follow uh, the trail of our uh, amazing online history through your archives, you should look in your in your uh, browser histories. I hope my browser history goes when I die. But, uh, <laughs> you can look in your own browser histories for at Omnibus Project on various social media platforms, at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick on uh, Twitter in my case and Instagram 
in mind because John is hoping that Twitter dies like a beaver hat craze. Mm, won't that be nice? Uh, we Like a beaver hat craze. Like beaver felt hats. Yesterday's news. We received email at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. Drop us a line. Tell us how we're doing. Uh, you could send physical mail to P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155, which is where the omnibus received its artifacts. For example, John, I, uh, I neglected to show you this. What? An eight-pack of canned Skyline... Chili. That looks like a four quotes. pack of. Oh, sorry, Skyline it's a four chili. pack. <laughs> I know an eight pack of Skyline chili when I see one. I thought this was a four dimensional solid with a separate <laughs> dimension, but it turns out no. There's only an X, Y, and Z axis. Uh, wow. So, uh, are we going to split that up two and two, or do you? Are you just going to? You seem to be holding it like get this out of my hands. I feel like maybe my kids would try Cincinnati chili. If, yeah. If just to be upset about it. Well, my, is, my son would. You put it on. Scabetti, how is that not a great thing? Who doesn't want scabetti covered with with uh, cinnamon flavored chili? Cinnamon flavored, not really chili. And if you want to make your own, we also got a Cincinnati chili capital of the USA postcard that has a recipe on the front and on the back instructs you how to make two, three, four, and five way Cincinnati chili. This it's, is a, a vintage postcard. It's one of those like food photography postcards where the food just looks awful. Food, food photography having not been invented until, what, some Coke ad invented it in 1986. Yeah, that's a guy with a Kodak in a dark room. And it's casting weird shadows on yeah. the blue background behind it. It's just fantastic. Everything about this photo is fantastic. It's a postcard, but it's also a recipe card, right? You're, you're supposed to file this with your... I'll put that in my grandmother's copy of Joy of Cooking. This was sent to me by Peter Gordon. Uh, noted American puzzle writer and editor. He used to edit the crossword puzzle in the New York Sun. Oh, nice. And uh, I, I worked on a book with him a while ago, and he also sent me a copy of his sizzlingly hard fireball crosswords. It's nice that he is listening to the show. Yes, or either that or just intuited that I would want to get a, <laughs> a chili postcard along with my crossword book. Seems less likely. Uh, now that now that the New York Sun no longer publishes much less a crossword, Peter uh, does these extremely hard crosswords online. And I was noticing the introduction says uh, the puzzles are hard. How hard? If you have to ask, too hard for you. Oh, I wow. had to ask. Yes, yeah, so I don't know if he's going to sell a lot of copies. <laughs> are these acrostics, or I mean, are these what are the ones that are popular in the UK? Oh, the where cryptics? it's a, a cryptic crossword. No, these are just regular crosswords. And the trend today is for the words to still, the vocabulary to still be perfectly accessible, but the clues are just uh, much mm. more uh, oblique. Why is that a trend? Doesn't seem like a trend. That get, seems just like you get like, your money's worth. Like fifteen people being jerks. Let's say you're me, and you can do. A New York Times crossword in three minutes. You think, come on. I really hate you for so many reasons. You can also contribute to our Patreon if you have some extra specie mm. uh, or paper currency that's burning a hole in your profit. Convert right. script, it. A script from the, your company store, whatever it is. The Hell Bank. <laughs> Somebody else, by the way, also sent you a Zimbabwean $10 trillion note oh, or I'm something. Oh, I'm super excited. Thank you so much. Uh, you the, know, one thing you could send us uh, would be stock certificates in your startup. If you want to give both Ken <laughs> and me 100,000 uh, like voting shares in your startup because we've inspired you, please don't hesitate. Send us your dad's life insurance policy that you found in the bottom <laughs> drawer of his desk. We'll, uh, we'll take care of it for you. Look, young computer programmer, you're already going to be a billionaire. Why not cut us in? Wouldn't it be fun if John and I were uh, stockholders number seven and eight of your uh, about-to-be VC-funded outfit? How hilarious would that be? You could. It's like what a the, story. It's like that ding-dong that painted the spray-painted the mural at the Facebook headquarters and got some number of stocks that made him a that made him worth $60 million. Here's the deal. If you don't have a cool started in a garage story to put in the press release, you can just say that as a, you, you founded the podcast, you founded your company during a, a favorite podcast mm -hmm. and you thought it would be fun to send the founders uh, stock certificates. Because that's the kind of kooky, dooky CEO you're going to be. Fun. It's so fun. fun. Um, anyway, convert your money to uh, blockchain and send us your cryptocurrencies via our Patreon, patreon.com slash omnibusproject. You can 
congregate with uh, fellow listeners on our Facebook Future Links page. There are similar gatherings on Reddit and Discord. And I think that's it. I just got an email from Melania Trump claiming that she's never done this before, but now it's her turn because I get 50 emails a day from the Trumps because some wag signed me up as a Trump supporter to their email list. Maybe don't say this right after we announce our show email address. Because we, we, listen, we, we have more wags than a dog's tail. It's not in our funny. Audience. It's not funny. Uh, Futurelings, from our vantage point in your distant past, when things were not funny, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. It may be that losing our sense of humor was the thing that killed us finally. Maybe our sense of humor, humor was the only thing that saved us. Uh, We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.